This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week, we had the novelist Salman Rushdie in conversation with the BBC broadcaster Razia Iqbal. Daniel, what was the conversation about? So as you all probably know, Salman Rushdie is one of the most celebrated literary figures alive today. His book Midnight's Children was voted the Booker Prize Best of the Booker on two occasions and his books have sold over one million copies in the UK alone. He has a new book out called Quixote, which is a satire about modern America inspired by the classic Don Quixote. And he was interviewed on the Intelligence Squared stage by Razi Iqbal in a big live event that we staged in August 2019. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd greatly appreciate it. Good evening, everyone. Thanks very much for being here. Um, It is a huge privilege for me to be sitting on this stage with Salman Rushdie. People always say about well-known figures that they don't need an introduction, and I always think that's a bit rude. So... I'm going to introduce Salman properly. Um, <laughs> um, so sitting with me is a man who has written 20 books, 14 or some 20 books, 14 of them are novels. In 1981, he published Midnight's Children. It was his second novel, and it propelled him into the international limelight. It won the Booker Prize in that year. And in my view, in many ways, it changed literature and what was possible in the form of a novel. That novel also won the best of the Booker, the best winner of the the award's 40-year history, and that was a public vote, which I think is significant for any any writer. His fame then, some years later, propelled him into a very different direction after the publication of the Satanic Verses in 1988. In 1989, an Ayatollah in Tehran took against that book and placed a fatwa um, on Salman, a death sentence. Um, and for 10 years, he lived in hiding. All of this is chronicled in a fascinating memoir, if you haven't read it, uh, called Joseph Anton. And the novels since have not stopped coming. Two years ago, The Golden House, set in the United States, and this latest one, called Quixote. It's a picaresque journey through uh, contemporary America, full of prescience, wisdom, and laughter. Salman, let's start with Don Quixote. Mm. Miguel de Cervantes is... Um, novel of that name, published in 1605, um, regarded as the first greatest modern novel. When did it first start to have a grip on your imagination? Because this novel is clearly an homage to to Cervantes. A bit of it, yeah. I I read it when I was very young. I mean, I read it when I was still at college, when I must have been 20. At that time, the standard translation, the Penguin Classics translation, was really dull. 
I read my way through it, but I didn't fall in love with it. And as time went by, I would dip back into it. And um, I mean, the Moore's Law Sigh owes a little bit to, to, to the moments of, in, in the novel. Sure. And then what happened is a, there was a new translation, which is a great translation, which is Edith Grossman's translation, mm -hmm. which if you read it, it makes the book read like a con completely contemporary novel. It brings it to life in the most wonderful way. And then I fell in love with it. And that was about 10 years ago, the Grossman translation. And then five years ago, it was about to be the double anniversary of Shakespeare and Cervantes. They, they uh, died within days of each yeah, other in yeah. 1616. Right. So I, had to, I read a lot of Cervantes and Shakespeare because I had been asked to write something and so on. And, and I just thought how much these writers had to say to us, you know, as, how much they had to say to, to writers now. You know, that um, the great thing about, one of the many great things about Don Quixote is that it's a novel that constantly changes. You know, you, uh, you of course have the main story of, of Quixote and Sancho, but, but it keeps digressing and having stories within stories and stories inside those stories. You know, and, and um, it's sort of dazzlingly odd, you know, and I love that. Is that uh, what you think makes it a, a modern novel? Because you've also described it as a postmodern novel yeah, in well, that the, the, the characters have some sense of them being written about. Yeah, well, certainly in, in, in volume two, which Cervantes only wrote because somebody had written a fake volume two, you know, <laughs> which he really hated. And so he thought he has to write his own volume two. And in volume two of Don Quixote, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza know about the other Don Quixote and trash it all the time. <laughs> so, so, so you have characters in a novel who know that they're also in another novel and they have opinions about the novels that they're in. You know? and, I mean, that's ridiculously modern. You know? And I also thought, since I was thinking about Shakespeare as well, is what, one of the great things, one of the great gifts of Shakespeare to all the writers who come after him is that he showed you that a work doesn't have to be just one thing. It doesn't have to be just a comedy or just a tragedy or just a romantic work. Um, it can be all those things at the same time if you know how to do it. So that, you know, if you, if you look at Hamlet, act one, scene one, ghost story. Act one, scene two, politics, intrigues in the court of Denmark. Act one, scene three, love story. Um, somewhere in there, there's the comedy of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And then back to the ghost story. You know, so you can have a work which is three or four different kinds of thing, and that's okay. And I, I got from both those giants the idea of how to do this book. Uh, one was that I thought of my own silly old fool and his sidekick. Uh, who are not exactly like Quixote and Sancho, but, but they share the kind of given of Don Quixote. And, and then from Shakespeare, I thought, I'm going to write this book that changes all the time. That, you know, it's a journey book, it's a road novel in a way, but, and one of the things that can happen on a journey is that in different places you have different adventures which can be different kinds of experience, you know, and the book can be, the book can change in that way. So. So there's moments in the book when 
you could say it was a spy novel. Uh, there are moments when it's a kind of absurdist parable. There are moments when it's a science fiction novel. Um, and there are other moments which are much more naturalistic and emotional, you know, and, and I wanted to see if I could write a book which would be metamorphic in that way um, to try and capture this very rapidly changing, unstable reality that we live in. And the setting is contemporary America. For the most part, yeah. For the yeah. most part. Yeah. It's There's bits in London. in London, too. Yeah. Um, so the, the, in, in, why don't you just tell, because be, it's published today yes. in the United Kingdom and in India, so there will be very few people in the audience who have, have read it. Give us, give us a little sense about your Quixote and yes. his Sancho, who, you know, he, he, is a, he takes on the name of Quixote. His yes. name is uh, Ismail is, Smile, and yes. he's a down-at-heel, you know, down-on-his-luck pharmaceutical salesman. Uh, tra- Travelling salesman in the mid, in salesman. the Midwest yeah. in the Midwest um, of Indian ori- Indian American origin um, and and in the way that Cervantes says that that his Quixote is that his brain is addled by reading too many crappy romantic fictions I thought well what would that be now you know and I decided it would almost certainly be terrible television it would be crappy. Television, American television. Crappy American television, which, <laughs> of which there is no shortage. And, and, <laughs> and um, so he's this traveling salesman who is lonely and alone and never married and doesn't have any children and spends most of his life in cheap motel rooms watching, you know, Kardashians and bachelorettes and, um, and all the junk you can imagine. How and much it, research did you have to do, Salman? Tragic amount. <laughs> 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 I mean, the answer is tragic amounts, <laughs> because I don't watch this stuff, you know, but I had to, as I said to somebody today, I had to do my due diligence. <laughs> I had to watch these real housewives and, um, you know, Project Runway and you know, all just unbelievable amounts of, of, of junk. And I, it made me feel that my character was entirely credible, that if, you, <laughs> that if you watch this stuff for any length of time, you would lose your fucking mind. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and what happens to him um, is that he, as happens, I think, to some people who obsessively watch TV, you know, is that they begin to think that they know the people on the other side of the screen. It must have happened to you that you know people come up to you and talk to you as if you're friends. Yeah. You know, they say, when we last saw each other, you were saying this, and, and it's actually something you said on television. You know? um, so he falls in love with, falls in love with, he becomes obsessed with um, a woman on TV who, who is a talk show host, um, very famous, probably only Oprah Winfrey is more famous than her, um, and much younger than him, and very impressive and powerful woman that he has not a prayer with. You know, she is, as we now say, way out of his league. You know? <laughs> but that doesn't for a minute stop him. He's a dreamer. He decides that he is going to embark on this quest, which is two things. One, it's a physical quest. It's getting from the middle of nowhere in middle America to get to New York City where she is. But it's also a kind of quest of the soul because he feels that in order to win her hand, he has to be worthy of her. And so he has a whole project of how to pass various tests, you know, um, so that he can become 
if you like, the knight in shining armor that, that she will respond to. And so that's, that's the story. And then he has no child, right? But he wants a child. And he's also, as I hope it's clear by now, slightly crazy. Um, and he reads somewhere, or he sees somewhere on television, that if you go to certain famous meteor showers, like the Perseid meteor shower, and you literally wish upon a star, you might get a child. <laughs> so he does, and he does. The child appears in the, in the passenger seat of his Chevy Cruze. Um, teenage boy. Teenage boy, initially in black and white, because he hasn't fully arrived yet. <laughs> and, and like, in a way, like Pinocchio, he's trying to be a real live boy, you know, and, and gradually moves into full color. Um, and so that these two oddballs, the invented child and the old duffer, embark on this journey across America. And what, what I liked about it, that the, the young man, the young teenager, is very cynical and mutinous. But the old man is incredibly sweet-natured and hopeful. You know? And that's one way in which he's not like Don Quixote. You know? I mean, Don Quixote we know of as the knight of the dolorous countenance. You know, he's sad-faced. He's a kind of melancholy person. But my Quixote is relentlessly hopeful. And I thought to, to send this shining light of optimism with as a sidekick a completely mutinous, down-to-earth adolescent, and to send them off across an America which is not particularly optimistic, not particularly hopeful, that that would be a thing to do. And so that, and that's the story that's within the story, we learn very quickly, you're writing the story of, uh, of the, the book that we're reading, and then all of a sudden it becomes clear that the man who's writing the story is a, is a spy novelist. Yeah, I always wanted to be a second-rate spy novelist. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, fantastic aspiration. This is great. This gives us all hope. So I've so so made one up for myself. And so, yeah, and also, you know, I've never done it. I always had a reluctance to write the kind of book which is about somebody writing a book. You know, I thought, yes, I'm not sure about that. And then I found myself doing it, you know. So this I felt is, comfortable. Well, I didn't feel comfortable initially. I, I, so the novel has a second narrative strand, which is about the ostensible author of the main story uh, and his problems in life. And then you begin to see how the fiction that he's writing is in a way a way of working out the problems that he himself has in his life with inside his family and so on. Um, but I really worried about it because I'd always slightly disapproved of that kind of self-conscious fiction, you know, um, and that I'm doing it. So I told myself, that I would give myself, it just showed up. It wasn't supposed to be, it wasn't in the first plan of the book. You know, it, it just showed up. Oh, and, um, and I gave myself permission to try it and then to agree with myself that at a certain point, if I wasn't happy, I could remove it, you know, and go back to the simpler single narrative. You know? and, and so then I just kept going. And what happened is that the two stories started kind of growing into each other, you know, and, and they began to comment on each other and kind of illuminate each other. And um, I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting, you know. And so I, so I, I left it in. And, but then there was another scary part, which is I thought if the novel is going to really work, 
then gradually, as the novel progresses, and certainly by the time it ends, in some way that I didn't understand, the stories have to merge. You, know, you, you, have, you, have, you have to begin to see them as the same story. And I literally, I didn't know how to do it. I would sit there kind of sweating, thinking, ah. <laughs> should I start again? <laughs> yes, or should I, what do I have to do, you know? And, and then, in the kind of happy miracle that can happen when you're writing a book, you know, you wake up one morning and it's completely clear to you. You think, oh, yeah, obviously. You know, and then you do it, and then it feels good. So, so the book sort of came together in this way, some of which was not pre-planned. Right. You know? and, and is that unusual for you? It's getting more usual. Right. Mm. It used to be unusual. I used to have to plan everything out really carefully. You know? I mean, Midnight's Children, for example, the story of the, of the characters is so closely mapped onto the history of the country that you have to plan it, you have to think this happens then when this happened. And if you don't have that structure, you, can't, you sort of can't write the book. You know? so, so that was quite carefully plotted out. You know, but what's happened as I've got, got older, I guess, is that I've become happier with a more instinctual approach, with, with, with just seeing what happens in the magic of the act of creation. You know? and, and then being very skeptical about it and critical of it. But just letting it happen, you know. Let, let's look at um, a, a, another one of the, the the big themes. Trump's ghost is present, and you don't mention him at all in this novel. But but he is clearly present. And and the thing I wanted to ask you about that is that although it feels like it's a contemporary novel, it also feels as though the America that you are representing is one that isn't the creation of Trump. No, I, don't, I think he's the creation of it. You know, I, I, mean, I thought for a long time that he's, initially at least, he was an effect, not a cause. Mm. You know, that he was the effect of this incredibly divided society, you know, um, which he very skillfully exploited, and, and, and which now I think he quite cynically uh, works to deepen those divisions. You know, um, but the divisions were there before he showed up. And if he were to disappear tomorrow, the divisions would still be there. So, so I wanted to talk about this country in which, in which the divisions are so deep that people can't agree upon anything. You know, one man's lie is another man's truth. Um, what does that do to reality when people can't agree about on what it is? You know, um, I always thought that you know the, the realist novel, the great age of the realist novel, is based on the foundation of it is that the writer and the reader essentially have the same picture of the world. You know, that if Balzac, Stendhal, Zola, you know, when they're writing, they can assume that their readers see the world the same way as they do. You know. Um, and so you can tell a story about that world um, in, as, a, as a realist, and everybody understands that that realism is real. We, they all agree about that. But if you then reach a moment when that, that consensus has fractured, you know, um, when, real, when reality becomes contested instead of agreed upon, you know, um, what do you do about that? Because then the foundation's broken. 
you know. Um, and you have to write you have to write these weird books, in my view. You have but to try all kinds of things. have been thinking about that for a long time. I mean, yeah. I can think back to the Satanic Verses where you were, you're playing with the idea of it is so, it isn't so. Yeah. You know, so these no. are things that have concerned you for a very, yes, for very, very, very long, long time. time. And that's, why, that's why, I mean, I greatly admire the realist novel. You know, some of my favorite books in the world are, you know, Scarlet and Black and, you know, and, and, and Eugenie Condé and things like that. Um, but I think the world is not like that now. And in order to show this world credibly as it is, you have to use different techniques. And so that's why, that's why I have. I had thought that maybe a nonfiction book, which would explore the, you know, the so-called flyover states, as they're called by the people who live in the cities on the coasts, because you fly over them. And then I thought, no, I didn't want to write a nonfiction book. I wanted to have more be able to make it up more. But also have more fun. I mean, yeah. it, it really reads like a novel in which you've had a huge amount of fun. Yeah, uh, uh, I, yes. A lot of it is very good fun to have done. And it's scary at the same time because it kind of, there's some very strange bits of fun in it. Like, for example, there's a, there's a moment when Kishat and his Sancho arrive in this um, small town in New Jersey just across the river from New York. And, and, um, and they discover that people in the town are inexplicably turning into mastodons, big mastodons. Um, and where this came from was when I was at Cambridge, I acted in um, Eugenio Nesco's great play Rhinoceros, in which people turn into rhinoceroses. And I remember when I was cast in the play, I was 19 or something, I was cast in the play, I didn't understand it. Oh, you were directing it? No, 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 I was in it. I was one of the people turning into rhinoceroses. I turned into a rhinoceros. Not an easy thing to act. (laughs) But anyway, I I kind of didn't get it. And I remember saying to the director of the play, I said, you know, what's this about? And he very patiently explained to me about fascism and Nazism and and discovering suddenly the person you live next door to is a monster. Is a, is a total stranger and is dangerous to you, and you can't talk to them, you know. And I thought, oh, I know about, I know something about that, you know, because I mean, in in India, for example, the communal violence that happens in India, uh, for example, in 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 Old Delhi, when there's Hindu-Muslim communal violence, this this happens between people who have literally lived next door to each other, and with their children playing together, you know, one day, and the next day, one of them murders the other. You know? And that sense that we live in a moment where the people you know, the people you've lived amongst, can become so alien to you as to be dangerous to you. You know, um, that's I mean, what it's something that's replicated all over the world. All over the world, in the yeah. Balkans, in Rwanda, and so on. Exactly. Yeah. And so I thought, you know, UNESCO's play has something to say about that still. Mm. And I thought, well, I can't do rhinoceroses because he already did rhinoceroses, <laughs> so I'll have mastodons. So which is more appropriate to New it, Jersey. It is a very, very surreal moment <laughs> yeah. in, in, in the book. I, 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 want to, I want to talk a little bit about, um, about white supremacy and, and racism because um, Kishot is, uh, is an American of Indian origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, they, they encounter a group of people who are just vile to them and, and Sancho has another experience in which he's beaten up. And, and I... I wonder about 
you know, why you felt it was important to to, to focus on that in particular because it just it feels again like it's so topical and I wondered how worried you were about writing about things that were really topical in a novel. No, race is the explanation of America. It's not topical. You know, it is the actual foundation explanation. You know, the original sin of America is slavery, and and um, well, that and the extermination of the American Indians. The Indian. American Indians, yeah. yeah. But the slavery thing has never been resolved. And actually, this year is very important for that because this is 60, because this is 2019. Exactly 400 years ago this month, the first slave ships arrived in America. 1619. 1619. There's an awful lot that's happening in yes, the US. There's this thing called the 1619 that. Project to, yeah. to explore the, the nature of slavery and the meaning of it and the consequences of it, etc. So, I mean, race is the first explanation for what's happening in America. You know, I mean, I, I firmly believe that the re-energizing of the white supremacist movement, which was kind of down and out, you know, happened because of the election of a black president. And for eight years, these people had to tolerate a black family in the White House. Um, and I mean, a rather dignified and magnificent black family. Um, how unlike the current residents, <laughs> for about whom the word dignity does not leap to the tongue. <laughs> um, but I think it actually energized American racism, you know, just turbocharged it. And out of that came what we now have. You know. and, and, you know, race crime is every single day in America. It's not like occasionally. It's every single day. If you, if you are a black person, if you're a black parent bringing up a child in America, you have to teach them how to avoid being shot by a policeman. You know, you, you, have, to, you have to really, and, and you know, your child goes out on the street and you don't know if, it, if he or she will come home. You know, um, so it's not just something topical. It's well, I suppose my question was predicated on the fact that they're not African Americans. No, they're Indian American. That when they, you see, that made it. I mean, I, I'm not going to, as they now say, you know, I'm not going to take over the story of, of Black Americans. There's plenty of great Black American writers doing that work, you know. Um, um, but I thought the position of Indian Americans is interesting because it's changed. You know, like, like when, when I first started living in America 20 years ago, Indian Americans would say to me that somehow they were almost embarrassed to say that, that they felt sort of excused racism because the racism of America was so much aimed at the African-American community. You know, um, and that actually by comparison with this country, they felt they experienced much less racial prejudice. I mean, not completely. I mean, there was, for example, in, in the 50s and 60s in New, York, in New Jersey, there was a, a white gang who called themselves Dot Busters, um, you know, Dot Busters, who would, who would attack um, Indian Americans. Uh, but for the most part, it was relatively easygoing, you know. And, and then, after, then, then came 9-11 and everything changed. You know? And, and um, after 9-11, anybody with a, a brown skin there were people who would see them as potential terrorists. You know, if you were a Sikh man wearing a turban, then you, then you could be an Islamic terrorist, because who can tell one turban from another, you know, or one sort of beard from another? 
Um, and so suddenly, the position of Indian Americans in society altered. You know, and, and I wanted to look at that. Did, what, did you ever experience any, any racism overtly? I mean, I have in my life, you know. I mean, in the U.S. In, in the U.S. I mean, no, I mean, nobody's ever come up and attacked me. But there are things that have been written about me that I know would not have been written about me if I was Jonathan Franz and Orion McEwen. You know, because that's just, you know it. You, you smell it when you read it, you know. Yeah, but no, and I, have, I, have, I, I, had, I mean, I, got, I had some here. In this country? In this country, yeah. yeah. I mean, quite a bit. But no, I mean, so I'm not, I can't say I've ever been beaten up. But I'm quite happy about that. <laughs> we are too. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And I wonder if you'll just reflect with us a little bit about the kind of three countries, really, that have preoccupied you in, in so much of your yeah, writing. Yeah. This country, where you were educated, India, where you were born, and, and the United States, where you yeah. live now. Well, I think they're all in the same kind of mess. You know, I mean, it's not exactly the same mess, but it, they're, they're, you can see the echoes. You know, so, and again, it's to do with false histories. You know, so in, in India now, uh, the, the current government, which is immensely popular... Landslide majority. Landslide majority. Yeah. Um, bases that popularity on a kind of majoritarian view of Indian history, that only the Hindu experience of India is an authentic experience, and, and again casts its mind back to an idyllic Hindu moment before the Muslim invasions and the Muslim conquests. You know, and, and that idyllic, you know, make India great again, you have to go back to the age of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata, um, and then everything would be cool. You know? and There's quite a lot of fighting in those two texts. Yes, they're both, yes, I know, they're both war stories, which, 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 which people neglect. Um, but the, the rule of Ram, you know, Ram Rajya, um, is the thing that they aspire to restore, which is, again, you know, a false history. Ram is a fictional character. Right. Um, you could get in trouble in India for saying that. <laughs> um, yeah, don't tell anybody. <laughs> um, here, England, in particular, and unfortunately Wales as well, have been sold a fairy tale about England. You know that that uh, how beautiful it would be if only all these inconvenient foreigners weren't around. Um, and how beautiful it used to be before the inconvenient foreigners. Neglecting to mention that the prosperity of this country was based on the extreme exploitation bordering on rape of a quarter of the world. Um, imperialism is never offered as an explanation of England's glory. You know. But we should have that glory again. We should have straw boaters and go punting on the cam and drink champagne cocktails and wear cravats and have servants, but never be servants. We'll all have servants, but they won't be foreign. <laughs> White servants, um, English, good British servants. 
Ismail Merchant once asked me to work on a screenplay idea. He said, it's perfect for you, Salman. And it was about an English country house which was owned by a wealthy Indian family. And the English were all the servants. Right? <laughs> and, it was, and he said, it's called The Indians Win the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, you know, I said, it didn't appeal to you. I said, first of all, Ismail, that's the worst title ever. <laughs> and secondly, no thanks. So then he approached William Dalrymple, and William Dalrymple came across with a, had a brilliant title for it. He called it Lady Chatterjee's Lover. <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm amazed William didn't do it. And that, fil that film I wanted to see, you know. <laughs> No, but then Ismail died and it, it never happened because James Ivory wasn't interested right. in that. So, uh, but yeah, so <laughs> where did we, how did we get to that? We were talking about false history. So, false I, history, yeah, yeah. so I mean, what, one of the things that, that, that does interest me is that when you talk about false histories in, in the context of being uh, a writer, a novelist, you know, you've, you've had, you, if, you, if you extended it and start talking about what happens in these countries where you're allowed, um, you're allowed to offend anyone these days. And, and, you know, we've been talking a lot about anniversaries, and, and this is the 30th anniversary of the fatwa. And, and although it was a long time ago for you now, I wonder how you reflect on that central issue of freedom of expression and how, how much that has mutated in what's acceptable these days to say. I think, we're, I think we're losing the plot on freedom of expression. You know, I think we, we are not as clear about it as we used to be. And oddly, a younger generation seems to be the most confused. That's to say there are people, young, idealistic people now, not just in England, in America, all over the place, who believe that because of their idealistic principles, it's okay to suppress certain kinds of speech, which they don't like. And they don't, they don't accept the argument that that's a slippery slope that if you start banning certain kinds of speech because you don't like it, what happens when other people with other ideas have power and that could be your speech that's banned? Also, if you look at the history of, of free expression, when it is restrained or repressed, it is minority groups that suffer first and most, and most from that. So whether those minority, minority groups are, are racial or gender, or whatever it may be. Minorities suffer from the repression of expression. And to me, that's, a, that's, that's clear. But, but it is true. what is true is that different, even in the, in the so-called Western, in the, in the Western democracies, different countries define the issue of free speech differently. You know? so, um, so there's not just an absolute, because, for example, England has a different view than America. You know, in this country, there's a thing called the Race Relations Act. So, so if you say things which are openly racist, you can be prosecuted and sent to jail. Um, in America, the First Amendment protects a lot of that speech. You know? uh, and that's why you know, the Ku Klux Klan can say whatever it feels like, etc. And I remember when I moved from... London to New York. I mean, I had lived with the Race Relations Act, and I thought, well, what's wrong with that? You know, I mean, it seems fine to me. You know? and, 
And, and then I got there and there was this other approach using the First Amendment as its, as its basis. Um, and I began to gradually change my mind and, and, and to think that if you suppress speech, those attitudes don't go away. And if you drive it underground, you can actually increase its power because it acquires the power of taboo. You know, and and um, I would rather, frankly, I'd rather know where the racists are. You know, and you speak up. <laughs> and, and, um, and then, you know, be able to go after them. Um, and I don't mean, you know, beat them up. But, <laughs> although I could make some exceptions. But, <laughs> I mean, you know, the best way to answer that kind of speech is with other speech. You know, and uh, you have to win the argument. You know, you can't, you can't, you don't defeat racism by, by gagging it, you know. Um, so, but I mean, I'm conscious of the fact that this is, is not an absolute. You know, this is a thing about which different people who believe in free expression will have different points of view, yeah. you know. And we just have to go on arguing it. I just, when, when people start talking about you know, deplatforming Jermaine Greer because she says something about trans people that other people don't like. Then I then I get start getting worried. You know, I think, you know, Jermaine has been very important in the women's movement. I mean, she may now be an eccentric old lady, but she has been very significant. You know, and has earned the right to talk about things that she feels. You know, and. And people can argue against and, her. And people can argue against her. You right. know, and, uh, and I feel that, and, and I think, you know, social media has something to do with this, the creation of kind of mob attitudes. Yeah. Somebody says something and a million people rush at them, yeah. you know. But then uh, also the mainstream media pay attention to social media in a way that perhaps, yeah. you know, it, when it didn't exist, they didn't. They there didn't. was a different yeah. kind of organic exactly. culture that emerged. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is... I mean, if we come back to Kishat, I mean, I think all of that is a part of the junk culture of our time. Yeah. Um, that is, that it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point at which it's just silly fun, yeah. you know, and who cares? Uh, and there's a point at which it becomes worrying. And I think, for example, with these reality shows in which they fool around, I mean, they're not reality. They're enormously manipulated, you know. Um, timelines are scrambled, and people are told when to have a fight. And the whole thing is, art, is artifice, but it's presented as truth. And if over a long period of time, people are receiving images in which that borderline between reliable truth and untruth is deliberately blurred, you know, then that does something to our way, our way of thinking and our way of perception and our ability to tell truth from lies. You know? And, and that's, that's the serious thing. Uh, and and uh, the same is true of free expression. If some of it, some of this stuff is silly stuff at colleges that people grow out of. You know? I mean, I've found after 20 years of partly teaching in the American Academy that you do sometimes get this kind of trigger warning stuff um, from, particularly from young undergraduates. By the time you've got graduate students, you never hear anything of that. You know, I mean, I teach graduate students at NYU. I have never on a single occasion had any of that stuff come up. Mm. Um, and so I think maybe this is just something hap about being young. 
But I, I, I want to just press you a bit on, on the way in which you regard not just your role, but, but the role of a, of a writer, of an intellectual in, in public discourse. You know, mm. when you're writing novels and you're reflecting and you're thinking and you're observing societies, I, I just wonder in the context of what you've just described, this inability to be able to tell the difference between what's real and what's artifice, what's been manipulated and what's true, you know, when we live in a world of, of, of fake news that, that makes us doubt something that's come out of our own mouths. I mean, mm. what, what is the role of, of a public intellectual and what kind of space can you carve out for yourselves that, that allows you to have a voice? Well, I mean, there's two different things there. One is the role, one is what artists do and one is the, the public intellectual. They're not the same thing. Mm. Um, I, I'm very reluctant to make any kind of prescription about how people should create art, you know, because there's as many different kinds of acts of creation as there are artists. And some great writers are uninterested in the public subject and are interested only in private life. And that has to be fine, you know. And, and, and others are more interested in public and social issues, and, and that's fine. I think it's very... I don't like novels or plays or works of art which are didactic. You know? I don't like them. I don't like to be told what to think in a work of art. I like a space to be created in which I can think, and, and in which I can, in which I, as the reader, as the consumer of the, you know, can can make up my own mind about what I'm being shown. You know, that's I think how the transaction works. But then, if you are of the kind of cast in mind that wants to get involved with the world. My view is you do that outside the art. You know, you do, that, that, that there's, there's, it takes a really long time to write a novel, and the world moves very fast. So if you want to say something about what's going on, a novel's a bad way to do it. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, that's where, that is where you know, journalism and commentary comes in, and lecturing and so on. And I mean, I do, you know, I do a bit of that. And, and sometimes I try and get out of the comfort zone and go into the enemy territory. You know, I mean, I had this very interesting encounter in, a, in, in Florida in, in a town called Vero Beach, which is quite near Cape Canaveral and the Rockets. But anyway, a very, very conservative town. And I'm speaking to an audience, if you can imagine it, bigger than this one. I mean, maybe twice the size of this one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but, and almost all of it, I think, Trump voters. I mean, 90% of it, anyway, Republicans. But not at all the cliche of Republicans, not blue-collar, badly educated, you know, people. White-collar, many of them retirees, who had held down important jobs, um, who were college-educated, who were book readers, otherwise why are they coming to listen to me? You know, so, um, and yet, they had completely drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, so in the conversation we had, somebody would jump up and say, do you really believe the New York Times doesn't just lie to us every day? You really believe that? And I said, well, yeah, I do, except when they're reviewing my books. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else jumped up and said, when you said... When you said that thing about climate change that all the scientists agree with you, well, that's not true. And I said, well, yeah, it kind of is true. 
<laughs> and he said, no, it's not. And I said, well, sir, we can't just stand here going, yes, it is, no, it's not, because that's silly. And I, I said, well, let me put it to you this way. If you believe the world is flat, it doesn't make the world flat. The world doesn't need you to believe that it's round to be round. <laughs> because, in fact, it is round, and, and there's this thing called evidence that, that shows us that. Um, and so what I liked about it was that this was a courteous exchange. You know, nobody was abusing anybody. Nobody was storming out. Nobody was throwing things. They, we, they radically disagreed. But we were able to have the conversation. You know, and I thought, okay, there's at least still that. And I think that's actually, that this was about a year ago, and I think it's actually diminishing that, that ground where you could actually stand and talk to people who radically disagree with you. you know. But I think it's very important to try. I, I, I want to ask one final question before I open it up to the floor, because we haven't really touched on it in, and bring it back to the, the novel. It, it, it is, in the final analysis, an incredibly tender novel, because the, a major theme in it is family relationships yeah. and relationships between fathers and sons and siblings. And, and you, you strike me in the novel as being someone who is actually full of hope and your, your commitment and... Um, hope in terms of what love can do mm. is is quite profound in this book in a way that I haven't haven't always sensed it in, in others and, and no. it feels like it's personal. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, for me, I mean, for me, family is the most important thing you know, and, and, and it has been so in a lot of my writing. I mean, it's a, you know, Midnight Children is about a family, The Moor's Last Side is about a family. I mean, there's, there's, it's, I, this time, I wanted to talk about what happens to, in this diasporic world, uh, what happens to families which become divided, either physically by, by being in different parts of the world and, and becoming estranged from each other because of that, you know, or divided because of things that have happened in the family that so, for rightly or wrongly somebody's wounded by what somebody else has done and, and, and that's created distance and yet there's still these blood relationships of incredible power you know and, um, and so one of the big subjects of the, of the book is the question of forgiveness uh, the question of whether between parents and children between siblings when there has been difficulty whether there can be forgiveness which reunites the thing that was broken you know and and I think underneath all the kind of, I mean, I hope this book is lots of fun, you know, because it's playful and people have told me that it's funny, so... <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah. One reviewer bitterly said, it is funny, but it's not as funny as he thinks it is. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you remembered it. <laughs> well, you know, you always, you know this, you always remember the bad review better than yeah, the good of review. Of course. Um, but under all that play some of which is formal and some of which is linguistic and so on. I think the heart of the novel is this question. The heart of the novel is about different kinds of love. Romantic love is presented almost comically in the form of Kishat's obsession with Salma. Mm. Comically for most of the novel and then a bit different later on. Um, but these other kinds of love, the love inside families, you know, is presented completely straightforwardly and is written about realistically, I think, and as truthfully as I could make it. And I think really the heart of the book is that. I'm glad we got, we, we got to hear you talk about that. Um, okay, the house lights I think are going to go up. A hand just there. 
You talked um, quite a lot about the different literary influences on your writing and on this book in particular. One area you didn't talk about was science fiction. The book seems to draw quite heavily on a couple of science fiction short stories. Just wondered yeah. if you could expand on what, what made you do that. Yes, science fiction. Yeah, no, I mean, I, when I was a teenager at boarding school at rugby, I consumed industrial quantities of science fiction. <laughs> I was probably responsible for the sale of most of the science fiction sold. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, I just gobbled it all down. And, I mean, and not just the kind of, there's, you know, there's, there's posh science fiction and then there's not posh science fiction. The posh stuff is Kurt Vonnegut and Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick and Arthur C. Clarke and Ursula Le Guin and so on. And the other stuff is in magazines called things like Astounding. <laughs> and there's also another magazine called Amazing. <laughs> and, and, and the writers in that are not at all distinguished. And they have names like L. Sprague de Camp and Frederick Pohl and C.M. Kornbluth and Clifford D. Simak and, and Zena Henderson and so on. Right? You see, you have to be, if, if there's anybody here who's a golden age science fiction buff, you know who these people are. Anyway, I gobbled all this stuff down. And then there's a moment when I stopped doing that. I just stopped reading all that stuff. Uh, but an enormous amount of it stayed with me. And, and when writing this book, in the acknowledgments, acknowledgments of the book, uh, there, there, there is a special mention of two particular stories, um, classic science fiction short stories, one of which is Arthur C. Clarke's story, The Nine Billion Names of God, and, and the other of which is, is, is Catherine McLean's story, Pictures Don't Lie. And, and I can't actually explain to you, because it would mean giving away the ending, but there was a moment when reading Catherine McLean's story, uh, or remembering Catherine McLean's story and then finding it and reading it again, um, showed me how the book should end. And uh, so it was really helpful. So you're all just going to have to read it. Um, so let's have a hand. Let's go over there in the middle. Uh, thank you. I assure you I'm a big fan of most of your work, but um, there was a particular episode that you did on Curb Your Enthusiasm uh. where you were going to do a Fatwa the Musical with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just, just and I just tell wondered... the story. I was going to ask you that. Do you have, is there a question or you just want him to tell the story? No, I just wondered if we're ever actually going to see the musical in the West End because oh, I, I think it, you'd make a lot of money. Real? Pardon? Is that the question? <laughs> it might be the question. Is that the question? And I think so you need to tell so. the story first because maybe not everybody not knows. Everybody, I don't know. That, is Curb, Curb very, your enthusiasm? Is it very widely that, seen yeah, here? Yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Anyway, so... I had met Larry David like one and a half times. I didn't know him at all well. <laughs> he calls me up, or he calls my agent and they connect us, and I speak to him on the phone. And he says, so we've got this idea about how I, I'm gonna make a musical about your life. <laughs> it's called Fatwa, exclamation mark. <laughs> and, um, and what happens in the series is I go on TV to promote the musical and I say something which, which, the, which the Ayatollahs don't like and so there's a fatwa on me. <laughs> and I have to go into hiding. And then I have to come and ask you for advice. Do you want to do the part? And I said, well, can I see a script? 
And they said, well, that's, he said, well, that's difficult because the whole thing's improvised, so there's no script. So I said, well, can you talk to me about it? And so then he talked to me about it for a few minutes. And my first reaction was, I don't know if this is funny. <laughs> you know, I mean, how funny is this? And then I thought again, and I thought, you know, there was clearly a moment in my life, a decade earlier, two decades earlier, when it wouldn't have been funny at all. You know, and, and, and I would never have agreed to take part in it. And then I thought, well, if we've got to the point where I can make fun of it, I kind of like that. And so I'm going to do it. And then it ended up with Lin-Manuel Miranda playing me in fatwa, exclamation mark, <laughs> and, and F. Murray Abraham playing the Ayatollah. <laughs> and I was in just two scenes. One's a scene where Larry comes to see me in my home, which is this kind of palace in the Hollywood Hills with, like, servants. <laughs> And, which all writers have these. <laughs> and he's wearing like a stupid wig <laughs> and is afraid. And I have to tell him not to be afraid and take the damn wig off. And we're going out to lunch. So in the second scene, we're in the restaurant and, and he's not in the wig. And then I, it was suggested to me that I should suggest this thing about how now that he's a man of danger, <laughs> <laughs> he's going to become much more attractive to women. <laughs> and then, you know, sitting at another table in the restaurant is Elizabeth Banks, and she sends him over a glass of champagne. And he says, look, it's really happening. <laughs> and I say, well, why are you talking to me for? Go and talk to her. And anyway, that's my little bit. And then I keep getting asked, is it true, man of danger, women after you? And I say, of sex is good. And I say, if only. <laughs> but, it was, but it was, I was quite nervous because it really is, I mean, it's not complete improv, it's guided improv. Mm. So they will sit you down and they will say, in this scene, we need to get from here to here. This is what needs to happen in the scene. But how you get from here to there is, is up to you. And what's even more scary is once you've done it, and they say, okay, that's great, that's great, we really like that, got that. Now, do it a different way. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, yeah. Ooh. I, I'm just... Go ahead. Hello. As uh, Kashmiris, do you think that it's possible that uh, we can have an independent Kashmir or we're going to have to deal with the Pakistan and Indian occupations of our region? I mean, I think what's happening in Kashmir right now is, is, is terrible. And I think it's terrible whichever side of the Kashmir dispute you're on. You know, that's to say that the defense being offered by the Indian government is that uh, there are jihadists coming in. Pakistan has send, is sending jihadists in and they, and they have to be, the, the state has to be rid of them and that Kashmir has to be finally integrated with the rest of India instead of given like special privileges. I mean, that, that's the argument. The argument doesn't work for the reason that many other states in India have that kind of regional autonomy. You know, Goa has it, um, Mizoram has it, Nagaland has it, and, and none of those states are being invaded by large numbers of Indian troops. Um, but I think what's happening right now is a human disaster, it's a human rights disaster, um, and it's something that no democracy should ever do. 
that you, have, you take a part of your own country and you cut it off from all communication. You, you shut down the internet, you shut down the telephone system, you shut down the cell phone network, you shut down the mail, you literally make it you, impossible for anyone to communicate, and then you send in an enormous number of, of highly armed troops and you start dragging people out of beds in the middle of the night and, and disappearing them. The doctor goes on television and complains about the absence of medical resources that he gets arrested. You know, um, even the United Nations, which has not taken a distinguished role in, in Kashmir, the Kashmir issue, said a few days ago that this is, this is unprecedented in, in, in the history of, de of democratic states. This is not how democracies behave. And India always prides itself. It uses this, it calls itself always the world's great, the world's largest democracy. Well, the well, rest of the world calls it that too. Yeah, and this is, this for sure is not democracy. This is authoritarianism bordering on tyranny. Why do you think so little has been said about it internationally? You know, it never has. I mean, India, India, India and Pakistan have had this sort of deadlock um, and the international community has always been reluctant to take up the case. And, and what nobody notices is that when Kashmiris have been asked, not very often, by the way, mm. but when they have been asked, they've always said exactly the same thing. They said, would you please both go away? Mm. You know, they've said the slogan for de generations was Kashmir for the Kashmiris. Yeah. You know, and and um, that's what they always wanted. And that's the subject that nobody discusses. The option that the, actually the people of the country want is the only thing that is never discussed. And it's got worse. I mean, it, it used to be that Kashmiri Islam had nothing to do with jihad, you know. Um, and now, unfortunately, it is a little bit more affected by that. Yeah. Um, but that's because the state for a long time now has been run like a, milita a militarized, you know, uh, a, a, like a captive state. But I think the, it is the most militarized place on, on, on earth. Yeah. I mean, Before they'd sent the troops in. Yes, yeah, so I mean, there's like a million soldiers, you know, in yeah. a place with a population of, what, 10 million. Yeah. And, this is, and, and, you know, it's, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, which, make, which makes it sort of more horrible somehow. I mean, it shouldn't, yeah. but it does. Um, I, I don't have a solution. The solution is the thing that nobody will discuss, which is Kashmiri autonomy, which has just been revoked. And it's not just Article 370, but the other article, which is called 35A, which is the thing which prevents non-Kashmiris from buying property in Kashmir. And that does sound as though it's an attempt to change the demographics of, yes. the, of the province. And not just that. It's an, it's, it, it'll allow all the billionaires to go in yeah. and, and buy up everything and ruin the place. You know? And I mean, Kashmir has mineral resources that people will want to extract and take, they won't be used to benefit the people of Kashmir. You know, so basically, it's going to become a land grab and a, and a, and a resources grab. Um, and sadly, it's extremely popular. What, what Modi has done is enormously supported by the large majority of the Indian population. Yeah. And that's sad too. Let's take a question from up there. Yeah, it's about why people still talking about the fatwa with the name of the Rushdi. Oh, why, why are people still talking about, about the fatwa in yeah. to you? With the I really agree. It's been so many years <laughs> now. It's, it's ridiculous why it is for that. <laughs> what's, what's the concerning with the literature work with the fatwa? I, I know the answer. I just need to say that 
if he can elaborate further on. He did respond yeah, to that. He said he agrees that. with yeah. you. And he doesn't agree. think it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, because it's so many years now. We have to move forward. That's the thing. Thank you very Thank much. You. If Thank you, you just inform the world's media of your position. <laughs> exactly. 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 I'd be, I'd be personally very grateful. Exactly. <laughs> okay, we, I'm going to take two more questions. I think we're done. Uh, is there any is up there? Is, oh, look, there's some hands going up there. Let's, let's have one from up there and then one from the floor here. Thank you, Mr. Roshti, uh, for this evening here. Um, I'm Parsi Iranian, and of course I want to say my apologies to you because of the fatwa and everything. But also I have a question about the Parsi people, because you know the Parsis from India, and I know them from Iran and everywhere else. And my question to you is how you envisage the Parsi culture continue in, in the world, because Pockets of Parsi people are very industrious, but they are fading away because of the separation. And could you see a, a, a possibility of Parsi culture and people kind of resurrect? I'm having real trouble hearing so, you. Okay, so the, you, I, I, can, I, I can hear him. So the question I, I, is about Parsi culture. Oh, yes. And, and what can be done to, to continue to preserve it because oh, the culture I mean, is fading. And especially because most Parsis are living in Iran, actually. I was thinking, or you have... Any vision of how Parsi culture can re-emerge re in Persia? Oh, I, I, I really can't comment about how Parsi Zoroastrian culture can be rekindled in 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 current in present day Iran. I mean, I I don't know. I have no answer to that. I don't know. I mean, in India, uh, the Parsi community has been very, particularly in Bombay and Karachi, to some extent, in Pakistan. The, the community has been very significant in those two places. And um, yes, the numbers are declining. And, and there's a problem of, of intermarriage and, and uh, so on. But I think Parsi culture has been very important in the history of Bombay and the history of Karachi. And um, I mean, I've tried to write about it. I mean, when I wrote The Ground Beneath Her Feet, that's a, the central family in that is a Parsi family. I don't know what to say to you about how you save a community which, whose numbers are dwindling. You know, um, I'm not the right kind of scientist for that. I think you should liberate Iran. Liberate, oh, I should li liberate Iran, yes. That's definitely... <laughs> that's that's your the, next project. That's at the top of my list. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to take a last question from up there. Thank you so much for uh, being so open with us this evening, um, as many of us would all agree. Um, what five tips would you give to the new generation of NRIs? Five tips? Can we just five, have, five maybe, tips we to just survive today's that world? That you would give to the next generation of non-resident Indians. Indians. Yeah. Five tips. Yeah, I think I, I think you could get away with one. <laughs> um, well, what would I say? I would say go back to India as much as you can. Don't, don't lose touch. There was a point in my life when I felt that I was losing touch. And, and I went back for seven months until the money ran out, and then I wrote Midnight's Children um, because I felt reconnected. You know? So I would strongly suggest keep in touch. Don't, go, don't leave it behind. Um, Try and retain the languages. Yeah, I think hard. I think it's very difficult um, in a country where the languages are not spoken that much, except in small communities. But 
I think to retain the mother tongue you know, is, is enormously helpful um, as a way of retaining the culture. I don't know, read books, conquer the world. <laughs> the, the reading of books is a great way on which to end. Um, Salman, thank you so much. Please put your hands together for Salman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.